This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Vegas.com. I've been uh, told by the boardwalk higher-ups that people are upset about my ad reads, uh, both fans and uh, companies alike. They say... Sometimes I'm a little too uh sometimes I'm a little too vulgar. Sometimes I'm a little too fast in the ad read, sometimes I'm a little too slow. Getting all kinds of notes. Uh so in um in a in a kind of a protest here, I'm going to I'm going to read the ad, just the ad read, no jokes, nothing else. So vegas.com has got the best deals in Las Vegas hotels of every type to help you find the perfect room that will fit your budget. Next Looking for a cheap stay in a clean cubby? No problem. How about suites of epic grandeur and luxury Las Vegas resorts? Yep, got them, too. Yeah, next. Before you make your Las Vegas hotel reservations, read hotel reviews from people who've actually stayed there. So you'll know you're making the right choice. Next. Acrobats, divas, magicians, jokesters, showgirls, and puppets. <laughs> wow. The new the new lions, tigers, bears, oh my. There are so many shows in Las Vegas that you can't possibly take them all in. But there's not a doubt you'll find something that'll blow you away. Good thing Vegas.com has tickets to all of them. Need help finding the best things to do in Las Vegas? Vegas.com knows what you want, and we've got it. Roller coasters, check. You know those famous roller coasters in Las Vegas? The uh, the ones that everyone goes to Las Vegas to go on, the roller coasters? Machine gun shooting ranges, yep. Zip lines, we've got multiples. <laughs> we've got more than one. Uh, Zipline. Free attractions? We've got those too. Don't you love those free attractions? I love to be asked, do you want to go see a free attraction? Uh, Vegas is the place to do what you would never do at home, and we're going to help you do it. Vegas.com offers the best package deals on Las Vegas vacations with more than 400 airlines from 1,700 departure cities, plus world class Vegas resorts, so we can help you create a great vacation package at the best price. And booking your flight and hotel room together can help you save on the entire package. Well, that's uh, that's the ad read. I guess I did make fun of it a little bit, which is probably going to get me in trouble here. But uh, this is how I'm going to read ads from now, just monotone voice, making a couple jokes. I'm a little hungover, which is probably why I sound more monotone than usual. But that's it. So find the best deals on hotels and trips to Vegas, and listeners will save even more by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first... The best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button shop on Amazon like in Earlywood, and we get a little kickback. I, a couple weeks ago, I said Venmo me instead of doing that. Don't do that. Someone did actually want to Venmo me, and I've told them no. But uh, yeah, just support the show by going on Amazon. Uh, before our guest, I want to say we're doing something a little special for this month, for the uh, month of Augie Doggy. Uh, which I guess is a comedy bang bang reference. That's funny. This is funny how that happens, right? That's the thing I say, but it's just it is a reference to comedy bang bang. So I can't say in my podcast because like I'm stealing content, which I don't mean to. Oggy doggy, baby, I love it. But for the month of August, we're doing the the same sketch pitch. That's right. I'm doing it again. Uh, I did it for March Madness, which someone said I should call it, I should have called March Pitchmas, which I, I agree that's a much better name. But uh, I used a blackout sketch last time, which maybe didn't generate as much conversation as normal. 
as it, as it could have. So we're going to try it again. This week's guest is Brian Tucker. He's worked on the Chris Rock Show, Mad TV, Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn, Chappelle Show, and he's currently one of the head writers of Saturday Night Live. Very few people in this in this world are so accomplished in sketch, so it was really cool getting to talk to him. Uh, I think you're really going to like this episode. So here is Brian Tucker. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, sure, thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? Uh, originally, I'm from outside of Richmond, Virginia. Um, that's where I grew up, and then I moved to North Carolina for college. I lived there for four years after and moved up to New York about 20 years ago. Were you, uh, at a young age, were you like, watching comedy or interested in comedy at all? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, you know, I was super into SNL when I discovered Monty Python on PBS. I was super into that. Um, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, there was no internet back then, so I would rent videos or buy audio tapes of, you know, uh, comics, um, you know, Steve Martin, Bill Cosby, George Carlin, um, I would watch uh, Monty Python sketches, like I said, and re- record them, and then uh, like write down the dialogue, you know, <laughs> so I could have it. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, about ten years later, they came out with a book of all the scripts, and I was so pleased <laughs> with that. But yeah, I would do that, and then when Conan came out in the in I guess nineteen ninety four, I would you know watch that uh, all the time, and also like kind of carefully write down stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, PBS had like a lot of weird like British comedy. It still does, I think. Yeah, which is interesting. They had like Black Adder. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And then like, uh, what is it? Yes, Minister. Is that? Or oh, I don't know that. Something one. like that. I've never yeah. seen that actually, but I just remember that like on the TV guide. Yeah, that. Little Britain was uh, oh, yeah. kind of one of their one of their big ones for a while. It was just two guys. Um, yeah, and um, there was one more. Uh, I, I guess Rowan Atkinson is the Black Adder one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so were you, uh, ever interested in like performing comedy at that time? Yes. Uh, I, you know, I, I grew up in Virginia. I didn't know, you know, how to get into show business or anything like that. So I, and I didn't even, I didn't know anyone who was involved with writing or the behind the scenes, but I could see people on TV and standups would come to my town and I'd watch them. And so what I, thought in my mind was uh, the best way to kind of get involved in show business is to be a performer. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a natural performer, but, uh, but I got into performing. I did an open mic at uh, age 17 in high school and then uh, started doing stand-up in college and then eventually joined a sketch group that went on to tour around for about five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is sketch group in college that toured around? Yeah, we were all friends in college working for the local student television sketch show. Um, and we all had like 10 to 15 minutes of decent stand-up, uh, mm-hmm. but that's not enough for a show. So one of the people in the group said, uh, let's form a group and we'll put together stuff and we'll do some of the sketches from our TV show and you know, we'll do stand-up. And uh, two of the guys in the group did like funny parody songs. And we'll put it together into a show. And we did that. And we played, uh, you know, for the first show we ever did was like in the basement of a dorm for their talent show. And then uh, we played like around campus and like little coffee houses and stuff. And then uh, around North Carolina. And then by the time we were done, five years later, we'd been making a full-time living at it for three years. And we played 
gosh, about 500 shows in four years. So quite, wow. quite a lot. Yeah, we went all over the country, mostly playing colleges, but we also played, you know, the improv in L.A. and Caroline's in the cellar here in New York. And uh, um, yeah, it was great. It was me and four of my friends and we got in a van that we had bought a custom van <laughs> with like, you know, a bed in the back. And we toured all over the country. And uh, and, you know, when I was we started doing that when I was 21 maybe even 20 gosh um and that was just a great life for you know five years wow so what was your material like back then uh it was sketchy it was very high energy it was performance based um Mm -hmm. but i will say uh we i knew about improv but i only knew about game-based improv whose line is it anyway type stuff so we did do improv but it was that kind of stuff uh you know party quirks or we would uh like one of our most popular things was we would uh, get three genres of music and three titles, and then we would do like a British countdown show, and the people uh, and me and another guy would host while the other people would kind of perform the you know uh, those. And we, but uh, at least forty percent of it was sketch, and then about twenty percent of it was stand up. So I was the main sketch writer guy mm-hmm. in it, um, and that's really where I got. Uh, a lot of experience, you know, writing uh, stuff. Um, another great thing about our group was we we didn't come from an all a theater background. We were stand ups. We performed out, you know, we performed for a live audience to get as much laughs as possible. We weren't setting a scene, so a lot of our sketches were very just jokes, 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 you know, with very little structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also, I think, helped me in terms of, you know, a- SNL is kind of a little like that as well. Uh, there's there's very little scene building in it. Right. So when you started uh, writing sketch for that, for that group, had you written sketch much before then? Only for the student television show mm-hmm. um, that I wrote on, uh, but no. Um, the good thing about that group and most groups when you're young is we just had a lot of leave to fail. You know, um, we uh, we would perform at a coffee shop in front of 25 people and 15 of them were our friends, you know. And so there was very little uh, downside to not doing well, to failing. Mm-hmm. And so we spent, you know, two or three years in college just performing getting a little better getting a little better uh and by the time we graduated and went on the road full time uh we were ready uh well you know at least at least ready with a good solid hour show that we Mm -hmm. tested you know through the years um yeah well and what's it like just going on tour straight after college uh it was pretty awesome um i will say i uh, it I worked as a waiter off and on for about six months where I kind of part of my income was, uh, was touring and then mm-hmm. part was not, but the day I got to quit that waiter job was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I, I certainly, we certainly weren't making a huge living, you know, the, uh, there were five of us and our normal rate that we charged was $850. Right. So, uh, we would split that, you know, among us. Um, but you know, to be that young and to uh, make a living down in North Carolina doing comedy was great and uh, and probably gave me enough confidence to move to New York and start all over again and try it. 
So when when the group finished touring, you you moved to New York. Yeah, we broke up. Uh, touring around was too much on a couple of the guys in the group. Uh, they, that's not the life that they wanted, uh, and so. We had played up in New York a few times before my brother lived up here, and so I decided to go and try. And basically, I came here in fall of 97 and started all over again. No one really knew who I was. I had some connections. We had a, a small-time agent who who had booked us um, to tour around. Um, but uh, But mostly I was, again, just doing open mics and getting up wherever I could. Um, the good thing was that I had over 500 shows under my belt so I was a lot better than a typical open micer mm-hmm. um, I wasn't starting from very scratch from the bottom uh, so you know uh, I got at least booked in regular shows a little quicker than a lot of other comics mm-hmm. would because I already moved up with a lot of experience and what was the comedy scene like back then because I guess it was you know like uh, pre-UCB yep and then kind I guess of. yeah I guess UCB maybe had just moved here mm-hmm and then I guess, uh, I guess I don't know much about stand-up back then. Uh, it was, so UCB uh, moved here almost the exact time that I moved in there, September, October of 97. They started performing just by themselves at a place called Solo Arts Group, which was this theater where you would have to ring a buzzer and walk upstairs. And, uh, um, and I actually did monologues for them one night uh long like in early 98 anyway um but that was a a weird time in stand-up because it for the longest time all the clubs were the heavy hitters in stand-up and the one night rooms you know uh, smaller places were just kind of coming up alternative comedy was a uh like a cool new thing, you know, with Mark Maron and Janine Garofalo and, uh, and people who would do storytelling. Um, but it wasn't the dominant thing. And so the club, when comedy central would have a showcase for what comedians they were going to give a half hour special, they would go to the clubs. And by the time I, uh, finished, uh, well not finished, but really started get being a full-time writer, Comedy Central was coming and looking at the one-night rooms. Um, uh, you know, uh, Luna Lounge. There was a place called the Gershwin Hotel that had a lot of stuff. Um, and then eventually uh, that Invite Them Up show and Rafifi, you know, mm-hmm. which came along, which was actually kind of right after me. I, I performed there a few times, but I, I wasn't, like, right involved in that scene. And I'll tell you another thing about that scene back then was the Lower East Side, where we are now, more on uh um uh like below houston you mm-hmm. know around uh that area but that was a whole scene of kind of performance artist and punk rock types and oh, wow. uh, i moved from north carolina and i just <laughs> found any um open mic that i could go to you know and so the first week i went to like one in a coffee shop where i lived on the upper east side with all the other white people and then I went down to the Lower East Side and signed up for an open mic at uh, a place called Reverend Jen's Anti Slam, uh, which was hosted by the Reverend Jen, who had elf ears. She's kind of a uh, a personality <laughs> from around here. And uh, the first guy got up and uh, wore a Ku Klux Klan outfit and did stand up, and then pulled his 
outfit up and he was naked from the waist down and he just did stand up in a Ku Klux Klan outfit with his dick out. And I was like, wow. And another guy that night, bald dude, real angry looking, uh, stomped up on stage, put a chair down, uh, and then took a, some duct tape and put it over his mouth. And he had three minutes and he just stood there and glared at the crowd with duct tape over his mouth. And wow. then I had to go up and tell my silly little <laughs> North Carolina jokes. I mean, luckily there were also people like like me in that scene. Yeah. You know, it was a real mix. But uh, but that scene was also something. There was a place called Surf Reality that was you know the ground zero for that scene, but also a place called Collective Unconsciousness. Both have been uh, turned into very nice apartments. Right. Yeah. It does feel like. Uh, the New York today wouldn't have that because of like the financial things of the city. I think that's true. Maybe there's some places way out in Brooklyn, or yeah. I think even the early days of there's a big co- comedy scene in Queens. I guess um, currently, I feel like. Oh, okay, I don't, I'm not um, familiar. That uh, the Creek in the Cave. Do you know this? Oh yeah, uh, that's kind of the main place. But there are other places there that I don't, I don't think it's it's that typical like art punk you know right. people, but it's it's. Uh, a place that's more dingy, theatery, mm-hmm. not not as uh, what it is now. I guess that's like the first thing that goes when like the when the rent goes up is like the the weird art yeah, stuff. Totally, um, and I think Reverend Jen is still around on the Lower East Side. She had a troll museum in her house <laughs> where she had like. 500 little trolls with their <laughs> hair and she charged people rent or, or, or an admission to you know come and and see the troll museum uh yeah and she also at least back then i doubt she does now but she, back then she also worked as a dominatrix so she was a comedian <laughs> art star poet uh troll museum curator <laughs> and she wore elf ears throughout her whole life like like never took them off Wow. Even, yeah. I can't imagine a dominatrix with just, like, elf ears. Yeah. People were into that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're doing stand-up, uh, and are you focusing on trying to get, like, a writing job during this time? Yes. I, I'm I'm much like any struggling comedian. I'm focused on getting any kind of job yeah. I can. Um, uh, I When I moved up to New York, I knew that my strength was writing, but... Um, but I also was wise enough to know that I just couldn't start, you know, uh, cold submitting things and I didn't know anybody. So I thought to myself, well, the best way to kind of get myself out there and people to know me as a funny person is to come up and do stand up. Um, and so I, you know, I, I had a modest stand up career. I, at least by uh, 98, 99, I was getting, you know, paid where I would go on you know to a club for three or four or a couple clubs for three or four weeks and then come back and temp and you know um and play around the city for maybe a little bit of money but but not very much mm-hmm. at places like gotham and uh sometimes the comic strip and you mentioned uh so you, you, part of the reason you're doing stand-up is because you're you wanted to get writing jobs yeah it is interesting to think about people who don't do any sort of performance stuff i do wonder like especially for, for comedy specifically how you like even are known it's hard. Um, I mean, I have. I, I say this to a lot of people, but the um, the the best way to get a writing job, at least in the comedy variety space, you know, the late night talk shows, the sketch shows, stuff like that, is to be a performer. Most all of the SNL writers are performers in some ways. The ones that aren't are Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard Lampoon, 
or uh, they just somehow knew somebody, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, they got very lucky in their connections, but 80, 85% of them are performers in some ways. And often they are UCB groundling second city, but many of them aren't, you know, lonely Island guys just did stuff on the internet. And when I say performer, I don't mean stand up. I don't even mm. necessarily mean like sketch comic, you know, they can be like people who put out their own funny videos or, you know, Bill Hader, who was in like a little group in Los Angeles, um, you know, um, so yeah, I think that's the best way to get noticed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you got a job at the Chris Rock show. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Um, that happened. Uh, well, I'll tell you, first of all, I got, um, my first real, I guess, job and it's not really my first, um, instance of getting paid to write for television was I was a faxer for um, Weekend Update for SNL. Oh, wow. And where I faxed in jokes to Norm MacDonald and then later Colin Quinn. And then I was also a faxer for David Letterman. Um, uh, I So my small-time agent, the one that booked me around the clubs, she was friends with the head monologue writer of Letterman, and he said, um, do you know of anybody who's a funny joke writer and she recommended me and so I was so excited I sent him two pages of topical jokes which I thought were great and he read them and like three days later he called me and said these are funny but they're not in Dave's uh, voice and I said oh, okay um, and he said you know watch Dave for a little bit try again and so I watched Dave every night for two weeks and then I wrote um, wrote him again and sent him in uh, fat by fax and I got a call like three hours later these are really funny matter of fact we're going to use one tonight so that was the first uh, instance I had and that was a real key for me because um, it, all this time I'd been writing a lot in my own voice and so much of being a decent TV writer is writing in someone else's voice so I, after watching Letterman carefully, there was this this one joke that kind of keyed me into his voice, which was, um, uh, um, you know, in China, scientists have cloned pigs, and you know what that means, more pigs. And then <laughs> that is very Letterman. It's so yeah. Letterman, you know, and it was it's really not a a punchline. There's right. like not a real weird twist to it. It's just kind of a joke that kind of thuds a little bit, but. Mm-hmm in a uh, kind of smart, you know, way. And uh, once I kind of got that voice in my mind, I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I ended up writing, faxing in jokes for him four days a week for about a year and a half. Wow. Um, and so on my resume, which I don't know if people cared about or not, but I could put, you know, writer for David Letterman or, you know, uh, I guess, what was it, like uh, freelance writer for yeah. David Letterman. Um, so... Chris Rock happened because that same agent um, represented uh, a comic who had opened for Chris Rock. He liked her, and he asked her to submit for his show. And when... <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, and when... Uh... Sorry. <coughs> Sorry about that. No, you're good. Um, the comic... Uh, Chris liked this comic that opened for him... Uh, he asked her to submit for a show. Her her and I had the same agent. My agent asked if he could send uh, Chris Rock's show other packets. And they ended up hiring me just on the strength of my packet, uh, which was rare uh, and very lucky. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my first real job in television. And when I got that, I got, um, you know, a much bigger agent and I joined the writer's union and, you know, became like a, mm-hmm. like a TV writer. Mm-hmm. And that was 18 years ago. So, uh, you're faxing jokes, which is so, as you know, it sounds, you know, obviously in 2018, it sounds so crazy to be faxing jokes in. Yeah. What, what's like the, what was like the process for that? Cause you said like a couple of days later you heard back about the jokes. Yeah. So would it take like a couple of days for well, the... The very first packet I sent in, I heard a couple days later, but then I got um, to where uh, once I was on their fax list, which was about 15 guys, uh, I would would have a deadline every day of, I think, 4 o'clock, but it might have been earlier than that. Mm -hmm. might have been like 2 o'clock. Uh, and I would say, and mostly what I would do is watch or read the news from the night before and send in a bunch of jokes in the morning or late at night. Yeah. So does that, that that doesn't really exist anymore in any way. Not really. The writer's guild kind of came down Uh, on it it and that that's part of it. But then another part is uh, SNL will still uh, sometimes take email jokes, but uh, it's a very, very select list. Um, uh, And there are people who've been emailing for two years and have never gotten a joke on. Colin had like one or two guys who were his writers. Weekend Update now has a staff of five uh, who are all pretty good joke writers. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think in general there's a lot more people writing and performing comedy than there were when I was coming up. Um, uh, Because of UCB and because of the internet and because there's 300 television channels instead of, you know, a hundred. <laughs> and um, comedy is like much cooler now than it definitely. was even like 10 years ago. Totally. Which I don't, I, I don't understand why. Like, I mean, I was into comedy 10 years ago, but that's, you know, I, I would be probably no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see like comedy is like now considered a very cool thing it is. to do. I mean, I tell my friends that it's a lot like being in a band, like what being in a band would be for kids who were in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. you know, where if you were in college in the nineties or even in the early two thousands, maybe you're in a band for like six months, a year, you know, whatever. And now comedy is like, yeah, I was on a UCB, you know, Herald <laughs> team for about two years and then and then kind of got on with my life. But uh yeah, I, I also think that there's just the truth is the good news is that there's a lot more jobs now. Right. Um because there's a lot more shows, there's a lot more, you know, outlets. The bad news is that there's a lot, well, not a lot, but many fewer regular stable jobs that make you a career. Most writers jump from one thing to another to another. Even great writers, you know, will will work on one show for four months and another show for four or five months and jump around. I've been really lucky to be on one of the last comedy shows that... Mm-hmm has a season from fall to spring and is not really going anywhere. And I've been there for uh, coming up in my 14th season. Mm-hmm. So at the the Chris Rock show, you wrote a packet. Was that just kind of like a monologue joke and sketch thing? It was monologue jokes and uh, ideas for sketches where it was just like, that's this is the idea and here's like two or three paragraphs of mm-hmm. what it is beaded out. Uh, and I think one of the sketches... I wrote a sketch on Chris Rock's show called Daddy Still Has a Flat Top. It was like an ABC after school special about <laughs> okay. a poor kid who's so, uh, di- who's so ashamed and embarrassed that his dad still has a big flat top haircut. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that uh, is in my um, Chris Rock packet. Mm-hmm. So. What was it like going from like a stand-up to like a full-time, full-time writing job? I mean, I loved it. I 
uh, I think a lot of people don't, but I, I came to New York pretty focused on being a writer. That's kind of what I wanted. And then the first day I met people like, uh, Steve O'Donnell, who wrote for The Simpsons and Seinfeld, and Ali Leroy, who's Pootie Tang, uh, uh-huh. and then written for a bunch of other stuff. I mean, I'm sorry, Lance Crowther is Pootie Tang, but Ali Leroy was another of the writers there. Um, Wanda Sykes, you know, um, and Mike Upchurch, who had written for Mr. Show, and all these people, and I was so just proud to be among them, and they they had a very similar attitude and style that I had um, and I, I felt very at home in that environment whereas when I go on stand up uh, when I go on the road with stand ups there, it's there's a uh, it's not it doesn't totally match my personality I'm not mm-hmm. you know uh, ball busting hard drinking road guy you know not that's not what all stand ups are but you can adapt a lot better if that's who you are as, mm-hmm. as a person so what was it like working on that show? I imagine it would be like pretty great. <laughs> it was great. Uh, that was that was a time when Chris was um, really at the height of his popularity. Um, uh, um, his special "Bring the Pain" had come out the year before, and that's what helped get him the show. Um, then, but "Bigger and Blacker" hadn't come out yet. He was the biggest comic in the country, and. He had been on SNL, you know, he liked a lot about SNL, but he didn't like a a lot about SNL, and he used those lessons to create the atmosphere for his show and how it operated Mm -hmm. and what he did. Um, And so he treated his writers very well. He took us to concerts. He took us to his movie premieres. We went to baseball games together, um, and looking back on it, it was my first job so I didn't know any better I thought oh writing jobs are like this but uh, looking back on it I thought his process was uh, very efficient and really good which was you go into his office you pitch him usually we do this once a week go in his office pitch him three or four ideas he ruminates on them for about a day and then he comes around to each office and tells you to write something that he likes. Mm-hmm. He might not tell he might tell you to not write anything or he might just <laughs> skip you. But then you write those scripts and then those scripts get uh, about half of those scripts get produced. Mm-hmm. So it's very uh, uh, it's a lot about generating ideas and not a lot about actual writing until it's actually happening. I see. Uh, which is almost the opposite of SNL. I was going to sure. say, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. SNL is uh, you write this, you write a lot of sketches, and then a lot of sketches are just gone. Yeah, most. Yeah, yeah. We put out about uh, there's probably about sixty sketches that get written every week by our writing staff. About thirty eight to forty of them get read out loud on Wednesday. About. 11 to 13 of them get picked for dress rehearsal and between 8 and 10 of them make it to air. Right. So it's tough. It's a lot of, and you would think in general we'd have a better overall quality of the show with that, but uh, but just the nature of it uh, is, you know, uh, a funny idea and, you know, a funny performance doesn't always translate into, you know, exactly the way you want it. That's another thing about Chris is he would... Uh, we'd go, we'd shoot the sketch, he would show it in front of an audience before he put it on air, we'd re-edit it, sometimes he would 
trash it, you know. Um, so a sketch could be written and produced a month before you actually saw it. Chappelle Show did this too. I, I hear Amy Schumer does that too. Uh, sketches get uh, tested and re-edited and stuff. SNL, one shot. Yeah. You know, so. So he he would like do it like at a stand up shows. He would like shows. No, at his show, um, uh, you know, he would say and watch these sketches. And one would be on the air. One would be for the show that night, but maybe two of them would proceed. Oh, I see. Before it, um, so uh, yeah, and Chappelle too. He would we would tape. Um, you know, uh, a half hour show would take an hour and fifteen minutes, and we'd mm. they'd show a whole bunch of stuff, and then. Uh, um, you know, they would deem a couple of things ready. Yeah. You know, every now and then they'd show something and it would go great and they'd be like, okay, let's let's put that on. But, and then after Chris Rock, you worked at Mad TV. Yep. Oh, uh, how'd you job. get that job? Um, the usual kind of stuff. Uh, um, just by that time I had a good agent. You know, I had a, a William Morris um, and uh, they called me up. My agent called me up and said, "Mad TV is looking for people. Do you want to submit?" And I submitted. And Chris Rock show had some cachet back then, and uh, and just got the job through that. And there was like a lot of talent at that time at Mad TV. There was. I mean, um, there. Frankly, there's always been a lot of talent at Mad TV. But um, uh, one thing I learned from that job was that uh, the tone of the show is really established by the people at the top and the people mm. at the top were always the same while the people underneath were different. Um, when I was there, people like Will, I thought Will Sasso was one of the funniest guys I'd ever met. Uh, Stephanie Weir, who, um, I think still to this day is probably the best improviser I've ever seen. Andrew Daly was on that, uh, season. Um, a, 19-year-old Taryn Killam was on that season. Oh, for, wow. Yeah, for about two to three months. <laughs> they brought him in the middle of the season, and I hate to say he got let go before the season ended. <laughs> but they did that with a lot of people. They would just put people on for like four or five episodes. Um, so, yeah, I met him back then. Bobby Lee, Frank Caliendo. Oh, Alex Bordstein's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a... That was not at all my favorite job. Um, I was in Los Angeles. I had just gotten married, and my wife was still in grad school here, so I was already unhappy starting the job. And uh, um, uh, it just didn't match my sensibilities. Mm -hmm. I I remember Mad TV during that time to be like um, maybe more. Shocking, yeah, a little crazy, a little crazy, yeah. and, and more maybe more shock humor, yeah. than say like SNL, yeah, totally. Uh, so, are, would you say that was kind of um, you, said, you kind of mentioned it was kind of dictated from above, maybe to be like that? Yeah, I mean, they didn't say write this more, yeah. you know, crazy, more broad, more shocking. Uh, but the things that would get picked often were the things that were more shocking, and they brought in an audience of mostly tourists from LA into the studio. Um, who, you know, that was more, it was mostly like younger people, a little bit more rowdy. Um, you know, the audience you might see at a stand up club at like 10 or 11 at night, and that's also what they would respond to. Um, so yeah, that's uh, whereas um, SNL is completely, you know, Lorne Michaels has. He sets the tone. He has, you know, final say on everything. He'll if you're 
he likes you, and if you do, do well there, he'll give you a long leash to do stuff. And often he'll agree to do something even if he doesn't think it's going to work because he believes in the performer or the writer. But, um, you know, ultimately what gets on it has his blessing and, mm -hmm. he, and he sets a, a hard tone, especially in terms of the uh, opening sketch, the monologue, and the people he likes to feature. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, it may move that up slightly. Yeah. There we go. There you go. Um, at, at what point, when you're working these jobs, do you think you really got like a great handle on writing sketch? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'll tell you that e even now uh, at, at SNL, I still don't totally know what's going to work, you know. You there are definitely things that I think are going to go great, and we put them up in front of an audience, and they bomb. Um, and every now and then, there's something I'm like, I don't know about this, and then it goes great. Mm -hmm. um, I have a better batting average than I used to because I've tried to learn from my mistakes, and also, especially at SNL, you can lean into performers, you know something with Kate McKinnon at the center of it, the audience is going to probably already like no matter what it is, um, or Keenan, who I work with a lot. Uh, and the opposite is true, too. Something, uh, something with, like, a new person um, is going to have a much harder time, even if it's a really funny idea and there's funny dialogue and stuff mm -hmm. like that in it. So after Matt TV, you went to uh, Colin Quinn. Yep. And was that kind of based off of uh, your previous relationship through like Weekend Update, or uh, that helped? Um, that that definitely helped seal me the job. But the the reason I got in on that job was a producer from Chris Rock worked at the Colin Quinn show, and they just started staffing up, and they mm -hmm. asked me to come. Um, I I uh, um, I sent in. I was doing real well with Colin. Like I would get on a joke just about every week. And one week I got on two jokes, which was great. Um, and uh, um, then he and I, I was still doing stand-up at the time, and he and I were performing together at a college where I was opening for him. And he, frankly, did not do that great. I didn't do all that great either. Um, and uh, in my... When I faxed in the jokes the next week, I just put a little note on the bottom like, uh, you know, good to finally meet you. Uh, great to work with you together. And I hope the two of us can go and bomb in a college together some other time <laughs> again, which I thought was a fun little joke. And apparently he remembered it and held it against me for like a year and a half. <laughs> Kind of in a lighthearted way because he hired me, obviously, yeah. but also like, you know, I kind of had to overcome that in his mind <laughs> that I wasn't a dick. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was a a really cool job. Um, I was so, it was back in New York. So I came back to New York. Um, I was so glad to, you know, be back here and I, working with some really great comedians, you know, uh, a couple who are not around anymore. Greg Giraldo, who I loved and I still think is one of the funniest comics ever. Patrice O'Neill, who was great, you know. Uh, and then Jim Norton, Keith Robinson, uh, Judy Gold, um, Jim David, you know. Uh, and then those were a lot of the regulars, Rich Voss. Uh, but then every comic you could think of went through there. And one of my jobs was to meet with them sit down with them, talk about what we're going to talk about, 
if you know have them go over their jokes sometimes i would pitch them my jokes and we would uh, kind of have a little dialogue before the mm-hmm. show just to prepare them and in that way i got to meet and kind of work with you know so many people yeah. which was really cool who is your favorite person to work with on that show Probably Greg Giraldo. I yeah. worked with him all the time. And uh, we would go out and do remotes, like man on the street pieces or, you know, um, uh, sometimes uh, like little half sketchy stuff where he would play himself, but he would be, you know, uh, interviewing people like a news program, you right. know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, he and I were, were, were buds on that show. Mm-hmm. So, were, were you writing uh, more monologue stuff or more like sketch stuff? I was writing I I was writing mostly what our job was was to work with the regular comics for what they called the third act segment which was the oh, uh right. like there's something weird that we would do uh but often uh we would I would write us and the other writing staff would write down jokes and things for the topics that we talked about. And when comics came in and they needed stuff, we would uh, give them jokes to say or things to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah. And then it, we started off like it, it was about two and a half seasons. The first season, that third act was was kind of sketchy and it didn't work very well because these guys were stand-ups and not really sketch mm-hmm. comics. Um, or there'd be kind of a monologue with visual from Colin that I would write, you know, um, uh, here's the four types of ethnicities of the future, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then later it just got so that we would have to create things that the comics could create, uh, games and, and segments that the comics could put their jokes in. So one thing that I, uh, came up with that they did a lot was this thing called um oh i can't believe it's already escaped um uh size me up um where we would get four audience members that i would pick and they would stand there and then each comic would have to look at them and t- and tell us um uh where they're from what their job <laughs> is and a fun fact about them <laughs> and i still remember uh you know basically i would pick people who just had a look about yeah. them, you know, dressed weird or, you know, uh, whatever. Um, one of my favorites was, uh, Geraldo. Uh, I picked a dude, he was like this kind of Brooklyn hipster black guy, but very dark and had sunglasses on and a hat, uh, like a baseball cap. <laughs> and, uh, Geraldo said, okay, when it was the, where you're from question, okay, you're from the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. But uh, we did that like, you know, 20, 25 times. Mm-hmm. So. At this point, you had been like um, kind of working at a show for like a year and then going to another show. What's it like to jumping into new writer's rooms? Um, always with a little trepidation, you know, uh, you don't quite know. Um, Tough Crowd was fun because it was really only four writers and I knew all of them were kind of my friends already. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Lori Kilmartin, Christian Finnegan, um, John Marshall, um, and uh, you know, there was a guy named Larry Getlin. Um, but uh, so that that was very easy. Uh, otherwise, SNL is harder because there's so much history. Uh, there are definitely cliques and groups and generations, and you have to go and be the new person. It feels like being a freshman on the first day of high mm-hmm. school. 
And um, there's so many writers, right? There's, yeah, yeah, a lot. And some that have been there for, you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's intimidating, SNL, definitely. I came in with, uh, in, I, frankly, I think I came in with one of the best classes they've ever had there. And I'll, I, I, I will tell you right now, I'm the least successful person <laughs> out of that class, and I'm still pretty successful. But I, the people I came in with were Kristen Wiig, uh, Andy Samberg, Bill Hader, um, and they moved Jason Sudeikis from uh, writer to cast. And then the other writer they hired was Colin Jost. Oh, oh and then wow. the Lonely Island people. So those that that group, every one of them ended up having a really good television or movie career, uh, or being uh, you know on Weekend Update and mm-hmm. uh, dating Scarlett Johansson. So <laughs> <laughs> I am the least successful out of all those people, but I I still did fine. Mm-hmm. So. And so after after Colin Quinn, you're at Chappelle. That's right. Uh, how, how did that gig happen? Um, so Chappelle didn't really have any writers. Mm-hmm. Um, the first season, it took freelance contributions. Um, and I knew Neil Brennan, who was Chappelle's uh, like co-creator of the show and was just his main guy. I knew him from the stand-up clubs. And I even knew Chappelle a little bit uh, from the stand-up clubs and from Chris Rock's show. They knew that I had written on Chris Rock's show even before they did the pilot, they got the pilot deal and uh, reached out to me and said, do you have any ideas? I sent them ideas. They didn't use them for the pilot, but they ended up using some of those ideas for the first season. They kept reaching out to me and I would send them uh, ideas. And if they liked the idea, I'd send them a script. Um, And then that show was on while tough crowd was on. uh, And so they wanted me to come over there, but Comedy Central was not crazy about poaching from one of their own mm. shows to another show. So I just sent in ideas to Chappelle um, until uh, the second season in which I got hired full time mm-hmm. and went over there because Tough Crowd was done. And everyone knows Chappelle as, his perform- as the performer. What's he like as like a writer? Uh, very loose, yeah. uh, very undisciplined. Um <laughs> Not at a, a lot more like a performer, like you'd think. Uh, his writing process is to sit in his office or in a room and talk about stuff for two to four hours. You know, maybe we listen to some music, maybe we watch a documentary, or you know, we uh, watch a old movie or something like that. You know, um, and then if he likes the idea later, you know, uh, there will be some writing. And I think Neil probably is the guy who actually sat at a computer and wrote it, but uh, with Chappelle over his shoulder all the time. With them, the stuff that I got on, either I sent them in an idea or uh, and they liked it, and then I sent them in a script, and they used that script as a first draft. As a matter of fact, almost all the ideas I got on were that. Um, or I pitched them an idea and then they just took it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that show was they got a pretty rough draft of a script and then went out and just shot it and, and shot a whole bunch of stuff and then all put it together in editing. Mm-hmm. And, and you wrote one of the classic Chappelle show sketches, uh, the racial draft. Right, right. What was the genesis of that idea? Uh, that idea came while I was working on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Um, I... Uh, 
Um, Colin was in an argument with, I think, Keith Robinson, although it might have been Kevin Hart, actually. Um, and they were talking about OJ. <laughs> and, uh, um, um, and Keith was saying, you know, uh, OJ lives with the white people. He's white, you know. Um, and then it got around to Jason Kidd and, and, uh, Colin said, um, you know, Jason Kidd's half black, half white. Why, why you're going to take credit for Jason Kidd, but give us, you know, (laughs) but, but we have to have OJ, you know, um, why can't we have Jason Kidd? Uh, and that sent a light bulb off in my head. And I actually pitched the idea to do one tough crowd with Colin Quinn as one of those third acts. Um, you know, I wrote out beats for it and stuff and Colin said, no, it's not really for me. Um, and so then I later, about a week later, I asked him permission to send it to Chappelle and send it in. And, uh, yeah, it worked out. I mean, I'm so glad that Chappelle did it and not, uh, Colin, because probably we we certainly would not be talking about it. (laughs) Um, yeah, he was the perfect guy to do it. So yeah, I sent them a script and, uh, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the structure of it and a lot of the jokes made it in, but there's a whole lot of stuff in there that just, they came up with on the day mm-hmm. of, and like they added Wu Tang uh, and I, oh, I didn't right. expect that. <laughs> so yeah. the Wu Tang is like the perfect button to that. Yeah. They yeah. Become the Asian. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you worked on like the Chris Rock show, Chappelle show. What's it like being like a, a white writer in like shows that are like the, the central theme to a lot of the show is about race. Um, it's uh, I'm reasonably comfortable with it. It's the kind of comedy that I really like to write, and frankly, it's what people know me for. You know, on on SNL, I my main writing partner is Keenan. I write a lot of stuff for him, but I also write for Leslie Jones. And when Jay Farrell was on, I wrote for him, and now Chris Redd is on. Um, I'm like, I really like writing about that kind of stuff and uh i think in you know when we were talking about the packet i sent to chris rock that got me in you know it was a lot of race stuff um so that's uh you know what i'm into you can you know if you're looking at me i'm basically wearing a banana republic like (laughs) um like collared shirt and some like uh cargo pants so i'm a i'm a pretty white looking dude uh (laughs) And I'm not exactly a guy who like fits in hanging out with, you know, uh, um, Chappelle and Questlove and people who would just hang out there. Um, but, uh, those topics really interest me and I really like them. And I think probably part of that comes from the comedy I grew up with, which when I was growing up, the coolest guy in the world was Eddie Murphy. Uh, I watched all those Norman Lear sitcoms, Good Times, and the Jeffersons, and Sanford and Son, and mm-hmm. so, yeah. Uh, and so then you started working at SNL. Yeah. And how'd you get that job? Um, Neil Brennan, who co-created Chappelle's show, was good friends with Seth Meyers. Uh, Seth asked Neil, do you know anyone who might be good? Neil recommended me, and that's how it happened. I mean, I still had to send in a packet and mm-hmm. stuff, but I was definitely... Uh, heavily considered and on the top of the pile um, mm-hmm. there. Um, and I think they uh, they were very glad to have a writer who was uh, willing to work with Keenan and back then uh, Finesse Mitchell, who both of them weren't getting a whole lot of stuff on the show, mm-hmm. and they wanted to hire someone who might help them. 
And so you're now one of the head writers. Mm -hmm. So do you now read the packets when they come in? Yeah, I have been ever since 2010. So what's kind of like, what do you look for when you get one of those packets? Um, it's tough. I'll, I'll tell you last year we got 375 packets wow. and out of that packet group, we hired one person. Wow. We hired four writers, but three of them were people who auditioned for the show and Lauren liked them enough to hire them, but didn't feel he had room on the cast. Something we do often, not as often as that, but often, mm-hmm. um, so it's really, really hard. Uh, the best thing you can do, again, is to be in our recommended pile, which is probably about uh, 30 to 40 people that have been recommended by other writers and cast. Those people get heavy consideration, and we read their packets very carefully. The other packets, I'll read one or two sketches, and then if I like them, I'll put them aside and maybe read the rest. Uh, but if, I, if I'm if i like, eh, then, mm-hmm. you know, I don't read 375. We we break up the right. job. But, I mean, the the biggest thing we look for, and it's tough, is d- a distinct voice. Um, you know, uh, what you write immediately shows what kind of personality you have and what kind of writer you are. Um, people have a really distinct voice are people like Jack Handy. Uh, there's a guy named Julio Torres who, when you see his sketches on SNL, you kind of know what, what it is. He did the, um, Wells for boys and the, uh, Papyrus. Papyrus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got a ethereal, you know, kind of, uh, interesting take on things and he has a, you know, real distinct voice right away. There's a writer we have named Sam Jay who's, uh, um, just came in who, you know, you know what her comedy is right away. Um, so, uh, that, that's the hardest thing because I think a lot of people submit to SNL hoping to write just a really, really competent SNL packet. Mm -hmm. But, um, sometimes veering away from that a little bit is actually an advantage because it, it helps you, um, distinguish yourself and your voice. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing we were talking about how everybody's into comedy now One thing I've noticed over the last seven to eight years is uh, the packets are, in general, better. You know, it used to be that I would read, out of every ten packets, two or three would be pretty good, and, like, three or four would be okay, and then there would be, like, two or three that were just a disaster. (laughs) You know, they didn't know what, uh, any kind of structure, any sketch, or, you know, anything. Um, And now, most packets are at least pretty good. You can tell that people have been training, you know, know what they're doing a lot more, and it makes it just a lot harder because out of those 375, I'll bet, you know, 150 of them could get hired on SNL and at least do a somewhat competent job. Mm -hmm. So it's tough. And so you always hear the first year is difficult for performers, but what's it like as a writer? Also difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's tough. We have a lot of writers, you know. Um, even if you're a great writer, it takes a while to learn the process, to learn um, uh, that um, often you have to write for performers. And I know that seems like it's a um, something you shouldn't, that's a given. But uh, you have to figure out what perform what the performers are good at and what works, um, and 
And then when your sketch actually gets picked, you have to figure out, you get to produce it, which is really nice. Another thing that Chris Rock kept from his show from SNL and Conan writers get, which means that if your sketch gets picked, you get to talk to wardrobe and, um, you know, hair and the design people and editing about, you know, what it looks like, how it comes out. And so the um, production, so the blame and the credit is kind of on your shoulders. Um, so uh, that also is a skill that, you know, new writers have to learn a little bit. Um, so it's tough. And even if your sketch is really, really good, and we on Wednesday we read 35 to 40 sketches, you know, if you're number 33, uh, it's a lot harder for people to laugh than if you're number three. Mm-hmm. So. And so do you, I mean, do you like that process of, like, going through and then, like, uh, writing the, the whole sketch and then having to throw it. I mean, do you think that's like a good process? I guess is what I'm trying to say. It seems uh, pretty inefficient to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think if I was starting my own show, I'd run it more like Chappelle or Chris Rock or Amy Schumer did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lorne uh, understands that his show is so performance based. You know, it's live in front of a live crowd. It's very it's theater like. You know, you you're you're getting um, the the audience has to like connect with the performer. So he understands that even if he reads a sketch and doesn't understand, you know, the jokes in it or what it means that if a performer can bring it to life and turn it into something, then, uh, um, then it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So he would rather hear the whole thing than just hear the idea. Mm. Um, and I understand that. And when you're writing a sketch, um, trying to make it kind of pop out for a performer. How do you like do that in the words? You work with the performer. That's the first thing you do. Um, There are writers and uh, who will write stuff and uh, write for a performer and just give it to them. And that's fine. I do that sometimes with a lot of our um, performers, a lot of our cast members, cast members also come up with ideas and write, but you know, it's kind of a lot more up to the writers to, to do that. Um, but you know, when I write something for Keenan, often I, my process is I sit with Keenan for anywhere between 30 minutes and 90 minutes and we talk it through, we write jokes, you know, we very casual, I sit by my keyboard and if, if, you know, if we say things, I write them all down. And by the end, I just have a whole bunch of, you know, just little things, you know, that are said that might be funny, whatever. And then Keenan leaves, and then I take all those little things and try to put them into a coherent sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's my process with most performers, but uh, also, like, you know, I do those uh, celebrity family feud sketches with Steve Harvey. And so, like, I'll just come up to 80 and be like, uh, do you have an impression you want to do? <laughs> you know, okay, uh, Paula Dean, you're going to do Paula Dean. Uh, what do you think she would say to this question? You know, and then I'll just, like, talk to her for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of put all that stuff together. And so you're you're currently the head writer. Uh, how did you move co-head up? writer? Co-head, yeah. sorry, yeah. one of the co-head writers. How did you move up to that position? Um, I stayed there long enough yeah. and <laughs> had some success. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my biggest thing was that uh, I connected with Keenan and brought him kind of from a performer that a lot of people didn't, I can't even say I did it. He and I, he he did it, but I helped him, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
become, you know, someone that people knew through sketches like uh, What Up With That was the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the genesis of uh, what, What's Up With That? Um, so Keenan came to me and said, uh, maybe there's a talk show where the host just can't stop singing the theme song. <laughs> and I was like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I could see that. Um, and we sat and talked it through. And then uh, another writer, Rob Klein, who was also the head writer for a couple years, um, uh, we all sat down together and talked it through. And uh, I guess the key to that sketch was once we realized that the show didn't necessarily have to go anywhere and that we had to heighten the song every time, you know, he sings a song and then he sings a song and the, you know, Jason Sudeikis comes out and dances and then he sings a song and we have, you know, some weird person come out and then he, you know, and each time we had to heighten it, but we, but we never had to like really take the sketch anywhere. Once that clicked into our brains, it became super fun because we were just like, well, what else can happen? You know? Um, and, uh, and so it just became, you know, all performance with, with just some fun ideas, mm-hmm. you know, thrown in between. Um, and then I worked with, uh, our SNL, um, every SNL staff has a person whose job it is to, take your music ideas and turn them into songs. And back then it was a woman named Catrice Barnes and she, uh, has like an R and B background and, uh, she did a great job of, you know, helping come up with that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of sang a few notes of it into a tape recorder for her. And then she goes back into her room and plays in a piano. And, uh, yeah. So it's always remarkable on SNL how, you know, the show's like made so quickly and how like the production design and everything is so incredible. It's amazing. I mean, especially when you think of when I started, we would do all live sketches and one commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, the Lonely Island guys did not much later, but that same season. But they would basically do the first six months. They would just do it themselves. Now we do usually like three films. You know, a mm-hmm. commercial, like a music video parody. You know, something like that. And so we have two to three film units working, and it is amazing what they can do. You know, uh, like I'll write a music video for Keenan, and we read it out loud on Wednesday at 5. It gets picked by 8.30 that night, and they start pre-production on it on, um, you know, Wednesday night. They have one day to do the production on it. And then Friday morning, I show up at a, like a, rehearsal space in Queens and they have six different sets and background dancers and costumes. And like, there's, you know, 50 staff all working, you know, on it. And it's amazing. Like how how they do that. So, so what's up with that? That's like, as a reoccurring sketch, how do you, I guess, you know, SNL used to have way more reoccurring sketches. I feel like, how do you feel about reoccurring sketches in general? Um, in general, I like them, and I think they're the lifeblood of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that a lot of our reoccurring sketches are now characters on update. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was Stefan. Uh, you know, now there's, like, a girl at a party or drunk uncle or, uh, you know, this year I did uh, three or four different LeVar balls with Keenan or, um, you know, we, that's that's a lot of our reoccurring are... Um, mm-hmm. Are people on update? Um, uh, 
I would like to see more reoccurring. I think two things have happened, and I, I don't know. There's there's a, a lot of reasons why you don't see as much, but I, I could see two. One is uh, Lauren Michaels is a little less... Um, he pushes less hard for that kind of stuff than he used to. We used to order stuff up all the time, you know. Uh, the you know let's uh, if if we read all the sketches out loud on Wednesday and don't come up with um, you know uh, and don't think and after everything's picked we feel like ah we don't have like a great show right here. They'll say okay let's do the uh, Jimmy Fallon and Rachel Dratch Boston people you know mm-hmm. let's put them out there. Um, and they used to do that a lot more or Kristen Wiig, Denise or, you know, Kristen Wiig, surprise lady. <laughs> There's a lot of those Kristen Wiig ones. Um, and now we don't do that as much. Uh, every now and then, a couple of times this year, uh, Family Feud was ordered that way. But Lauren, Lauren is not as much into that. Um, and then two, I believe, and this could easily be wrong, is that because of the Internet, um, a sketch comes on and it's a big hit and everybody likes it and you watch it three times on YouTube and it gets reported about in the media and passed around and it wears out its welcome a lot quicker mm. than it used to where it used to be that it, there would be a fun sketch come on and then you wouldn't get to see them for another you know at least two or three weeks and now you can see them anytime you want mm-hmm. um, and then another addendum I would say to that is a lot of our recurring characters also are politics. Uh, it's Trump, it's Hillary, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, uh, we had Robert Mueller this year and uh, Michael Cohen and um, the Trump brothers and, you know, people like that. So, so you started at SNL in, in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, you just finished your 13th season. Mm-hmm. So how, is, how has the show changed over time since then? Um. The, the biggest change are the pre-tapes. It's a lot more about, um, it's kind of changed with the internet age and in that uh, the kinds of things that people watch on the internet are a lot more like uh, genre parodies, quick cutting things, you know, movie trailers, music videos, um, you know, like a, a scary movie scene or an action scene, you know, stuff like that, that we couldn't do with just three walls and three cameras in a studio. Um, and so at least 30% of the show's real estate is taken up with those things. Um, and then, uh, another huge thing is, um, I believe that it's a lot more in the public consciousness than it used to be. Um, like the Lonely Island guys would often have things that everyone would talk about and pass around. But now, like if I wanted to... After every SNL show, I could read 11 different reviews of it. You know, people talk about it so much. And um, because there's so much, um, there's so many things to watch, there's this one show that's still the staple, you know, and uh, um, people kind of look to that show a lot more than they used to, I, I think, or, or maybe place more importance on it. I, maybe that's wrong. I, I don't know. I think that makes sense. I think placing more importance on it maybe is, is kind of where it's at. Yeah. Because it is kind of the last vestige of like the monoculture where right. it had like a show they talked about. It's true. Yeah. And even if you, last year, SNL a couple times, a couple shows, 
if you looked at all the shows on network television, SNL would have been the second most watched show in network television. And even in the 70s when, you know, it had an audience of like almost five times of what it does now, it's it would have been the 30th most watched show, you know, um, just because there's so, so fewer. But it is, compared to all the other shows, it's a lot more watched. You know, it's more watched mm-hmm. than most things on prime time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although it's got a... Well, it's got a smaller audience of people watching it at that moment. I don't know if it has a smaller audience in general. I think a lot more people know, you know, when we did the Trump-Hillary debate sketches, you know, so many people knew that. They might not have watched the episode, but they knew that, Mm -hmm. you know. So you you mentioned Trump. Yeah. Uh, What's it like working at SNL during like an election year? I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure 2012 was a lot different than 2016. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to work on on it, you know, 2008, 12, yeah. and 16. Um, and 2008, we had Tina as Sarah Palin, which was a big thing, too. Um, the 2016 one was really cool and gratifying. You know, it was, we knew people would pay more attention to the show, but because we had a great Hillary Clinton and Kate, and because... Uh, I hope people remember this. When Alec Baldwin came on, he was a sensation. You know, I think um, a lot of people are tired of the actual Trump now, and some people are tired of Alec as well. Um, but through no fault of his own, it's just we see Trump over and over and over again for two years. Anyway, but when that came out, it was sensational, and it was fun, and we were discovering new things with it, and it um, and it felt really cool. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I was glad to be, you know, uh, a part of that. So Trump obviously started like as a long shot and as a kind of a joke. And then he, you know, slowly became more serious. How did like your way of writing about him change over that time? Uh, definitely got more critical of him. Um, definitely wrote more. Um, a little we, we had to go past kind of the ridiculousness about him, you know, just his his hair and his money and stuff mm-hmm. that people were kind of joking about that we could go more about, you know, what he's talking about in regards to immigration or something that he, you know, uh what he a trip that he made to Asia, you know, more real presidential mm-hmm. things where we had to start taking him more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um and that has not abated. We still try to do that. I feel like the hard part for us, not only is the country so worn out with Trump because there's a new sensational story three times a week, uh, but also there's 10 to 12 other shows doing Trump material all the time. You know, there's the John Oliver's and Samantha B's, not to mention all the talk shows. And, uh, you know, for a while there was the, um, the one on Comedy Central, the president's show, and there's a cartoon president. And um, it's not all that hard for us to parody him. It's very, very hard to make it new. Mm. Uh, And so what we've done in lieu of that is instead of parodying him directly, maybe you noticed last season he would be on every three or four shows rather than on every show. We would do we would try to find people around him because those people would be new, you know, and mm-hmm. Steve Bannon, you know, might feel new. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Cohen, you know, is new. Stormy Daniels is new. Um, so we would try to find, 
instead of doing the same thing with Trump, we would, we would be like, okay, what's new around Trump mm -hmm. and parody that. And what do you, what do you think are like the, um, the hallmarks of good political satire on the show? Um, I mean, to me, it's something that we always have a rule and I, whether we follow it or not is up to interpretation, but we have a rule that we call the fair hit rule, which is in our minds, if you were on the side of the politician we were hitting, would you say, oh, yeah, he or she does do that. You're right. Um, uh, for a while, that's what we felt was, is it a fair hit? Are we, are we kind of ad hominem attacking them, you know? Um, and uh, that was our thing. I think the country is so divided that even if we did a very light and easy Trump parody, that people who love Trump would think we're a really liberal show. And people who hate Trump would think we were too soft. Um, you know, it's it's a tough space to be in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like the best, you know, parodies are ones that kind of parody uh, the broader culture or um, a a something that you thought of but wasn't um, wasn't really articulated yet. Mm. Um, uh, the um, uh, Ivanka Trump complicit commercial with Scarlett mm -hmm. Johansson, you know, kind of that was one of the first times kind of we went after her a little bit. Um, Actually, you wrote uh, the I think you wrote the Family Feud the uh, with Tom Hanks. That's oh, you mean Black Jeopardy? Black Jeopardy, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Black Jeopardy with, with uh, yeah. Tom Hanks. That's kind of also the similar. Thing. Yeah, that uh, I had said before. That's probably one of the sketches I'm most proud of on SNL. Maybe the sketch I'm most proud mm -hmm. of on SNL because. Uh, it was in the middle of that election season. It was saying something different in a different way, and it was shared by both uh, Essence Magazine and the Rush Limbaugh show, who b both people thought it was talking to them, you know. Um, and, like, that was like a needle that, you know, I and Keenan and Tom Hanks and Michael Che all worked together to... to or a thread to put right through a needle that we really hit, you know, uh, on all sides. Um, and I've been trying to do that ever since with limited success, not, not as much success of that as that. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was just, you know, partly serendipitous, but, uh, but also, you know, just, it hit, um, at the right time, I mm -hmm. guess, you know, with, and, and the show has had like political figures on the show before, like uh, Palin, uh, Trump, uh, Hillary. Probably I can't yep. think of Hillary. And then uh, you know Bernie and stuff. Yep. How do you write when uh, when those people are on the show? Um, we usually it involves a phone call to them before, except for when Trump hosted, which you know he comes on and we talk to him. Um, but usually involves a phone call to them. Uh, we get a sense of what they're willing to do. Like, are they okay to dress up in a costume or how much time do they want to spend with us? Are they willing to rehearse this twice? Or are they just going to come in and do it, you know, so that we have an idea of their availability mm -hmm. and willingness. And then we come back and pitch them, you know, we thought about this idea. Usually we narrow it down to one idea and we let them accept it, or reject it. And usually they accept it. Um, Every now and then we'll say, we thought about this or maybe this. Um, so, And then we bring them on and we give them a script. Uh, often they have a bunch of handlers who look it over 
luckily they're playing on our home field, so they're a lot more tentative about you know saying ah, can we change this? But they will say they'll usually give a little notes about like you know Hillary will be like oh, I don't want to make a joke about Ralph Nader, you know I know him, you know whatever. Um, so we will take their personal preferences into account, but we won't bend over backwards mm-hmm. and say this is what we're gonna do for you. You know, mm-hmm. the what we're doing for them is giving them a publicity by putting them on the show. Mm-hmm. And what was it like having like Trump actually host a full episode? Uh, super hard. Yeah. Um, I'll completely take the politics out of it. Let's let's assume he's not our president now, and let's just assume he's you know a seventy-one-year-old rich guy right. uh, who doesn't have any experience being a character or impression. Uh, home Alone is, too. All right, that's true. That's true. <laughs> he does have that. Everyone remembers that. It's the <laughs> iconic role of his. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he's exactly like what you might think. He doesn't have a great sense of humor, especially about himself. Um, he was not super easy to talk to. Um, you know, we wrote a monologue for him that, uh, kind of made a little fun of him. Uh, and he was not into it. And it was a constant negotiation up until the very end where, um, we finally got to a place where we were both okay with it. Um, I'll just give you an example of, of, uh, like the, how that went. Um, like one of the opening jokes we wrote for his monologue was, um, you know, they, uh, at SNL, they pay you $5,000, uh, uh, for the whole week to appear. Is that true? That's true. It might be more than that now, but it's not much more. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot of money if you're a movie star Mm -hmm. or, you know, or Trump, um, so they pay you $5,000 a week to appear, but I'm one of the greatest negotiators ever. So this week I am getting $5,008. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just kind of a light little almost after dinner speaker kind of joke to open the monologue. You know, nothing, not a big, not what we call a big swing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Trump looked at it. He was like, no, this is all wrong. <laughs> this is all wrong. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. And, uh, and he, he's like, I get, so they pay you $5,000, but I'm one of the greatest negotiators in history. So I'm getting $5 million to be on the show. <laughs> and, and I was, and I was like, well, you know, that's, um, uh, that's kind of the, the, the joke is that you're kind of making fun of yourself that, you know, the extra $8 is not really. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is going to be great. It's going to be so funny. And then later you know, in the week he told me that he had gone out to make a speech with people and he had tried out that joke and said $5 million and they loved it. (laughs) It was huge. And they ate it up. I'm like, yes, they're all there. They're your supporters. They're there to see you, you know, whatever. And so we went back and forth on that joke. Eventually neither joke made it into the monologue, but that's, it was those kind of things, you know, Mm -hmm. all week. Uh, so hard week. (laughs) And I imagine, uh, most hosts are actually very, uh, amicable and like very game for stuff yeah so that's nice (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no i mean all hosts have their opinions and thoughts about stuff um and they should we we try our best to write a show that the host is really into and likes and when we pick which sketches get on the show the hosts usually have some input if they've hosted three or four times they have a lot of input um so we don't want anyone to go up on stage and do something that they don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
that being said, you know, we also want to be funny. We certainly with politicians or, you know, athletes or whatever, we don't want to appear as if we're doing this to, you know, put them on a pedestal and be part of their PR machine, you know. Um, so uh, that's always a, a hard balance. Mm-hmm. And so you've uh, been on the show for 13 years. You're uh, uh, heading into your 14th season. Yep. Uh, how long do you think you're going to be on the show? Um, I'm definitely heading downhill on <laughs> on the show. I mean, I don't mean in quality, yeah. although maybe in quality. <laughs> who knows? Uh, but um, I'm I've climbed the SNL hill and I'm over it, and I'm 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 on the other side of it. Um, uh, so I'm uh, the 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 answer is not too much longer. I I don't I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's a any job is long is a long time to go for 13 14 years mm-hmm. um and you know co-head writer for four and a half and uh, uh the show thrives on new voices uh it thrives on change uh and you know at some point i need to uh, figure out something else productive to do comedy wise <laughs> would you ever want to get into narrative stuff? Yeah. yeah i've written a few pilots that uh sold um mm-hmm. one recently is last summer um uh, that would I would really like that. A, a tough part for me is there's not much of that in New York City. Right. Uh, I would have to move to L.A. and I have a wife and kids here. My wife has a very good job here. My kids really like their school and friends here. And I, I'm a little worried about uprooting my family to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I'm, you know, absolutely, uh, if it was a great thing, I, I think I think I would mm-hmm. entertain it. Okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. Sure. So, all right, so you know how on Twitter, uh, when a tweet goes viral, they'll somebody will like reply afterwards, like, while you're here, check out my SoundCloud or something? Yeah, yeah. So this would be like... The, a, the person who tweeted says right, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this would be like a, a doctor who's like, I got your test results, and they're ready to go, but first, I'm going to need you to listen to my SoundCloud. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then once you do that, uh-huh. I'll, I'll give you test results. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the, the basic idea of it. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like you, uh, the the thing about the 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 tweet is I've got all the I've got these millions of people listening to right. me now. Um, you know, and and uh, I, I feel like that would be, yeah. If the doctor was was already tweeting, or if the doctor was uh, like you know asking him to check out his Instagram or something mm-hmm. like that, where we kind of layered in that the doctor was uh, was. Um, uh, self-promoting, you know, mm-hmm. maybe like one of the first things he asked the patient is, so uh, how'd you hear about me? You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, oh, it's, oh, cool, cool, you know. Um, I just thought maybe it should be like bigger than a doctor because when you said like the millions of like people there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it should be like some sort of speech or something. Uh-huh, yeah. Or maybe he's got like the cure for something. Uh-huh. And he's like, okay, that's great. yeah. That's better, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes and it's a press conference. Right, mm-hmm. and it, he's developed this huge. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think that works. Or, uh, you know, if it's <laughs> if it's somebody like uh, who is in the news, but but didn't uh, didn't necessarily like in the news for something that they didn't uh, expect to be in the news for. Uh, like, oh, right. um, I'm trying to think who just suddenly had a microphone in there. You know, uh, like Ken Bone back in the yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Or uh yeah, somebody gets um 
I'm trying to think of like somebody who gets thrust in front of millions of people mm. for no reason, uh, you know, a lottery winner or right. a, um, or something like that. But I do really like the, uh, I feel like the, the doctor who cured cancer or whatever mm -hmm. cure he came up with yeah. is fun because people want to, they're already uh, admiring of him and they're like, oh, you know, what does he have yeah. to say, <laughs> you know? Uh, that's a fun character. And then he has uh, SoundCloud raps. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's, to me, there's always fun in uh, while you're listening to a song, like watching the person who did it just kind of sit there and, yeah, and be yeah. pleased with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I once heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I once heard that, um, you know, Eddie Murphy has put out a few of his own um, albums. Yeah. Uh, Party All the Time is actually a pretty good song. Pretty good song. Yeah. He was pretty good, yeah. you know, and probably still, I think, pretty good musician. Yeah. But he has a, his own st music studio in his L.A. Uh, home. Mm -hmm. And what I heard was when he put out a reggae album, Rolling Stone said they wanted to review it. And he said, OK, you can be the first to review it, but you got to come to my house. And they said, OK. And he brought the Rolling Stone reviewer in and just sat him down on the couch and turned on, you know, an hour's worth of his music of his new album and just sat there in a chair and watched him listen to it. <laughs> so, wow. you know, pretty awkward. Yeah. It does sound like Eddie Murphy would do that, though. Totally. <laughs> um, um, all right. Thanks for coming out. Anything you want to plug? Um, no. SNL is on uh, NBC. Yes, SNL is on NBC. Check it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'll I'll tell you. Can I plug another podcast? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, I helped start this um, thing called The Kicker. It's it's all comedy mm -hmm. about sports. Uh, we had a Facebook page, uh, um, YouTube videos. We work with brands and stuff to put out, and we have a Kicker podcast that's every week that uh, is just starting and getting some good. So if you like comedy and you like sports, yeah. I have a feeling a lot of people listening here like comedy. But if you also like sports, it's a good place to go. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Boardwalk Audio Podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.